Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. With the disappearance of many natural habitats over recent decades, our gardens are now vital in the protection of so much wildlife. But what role should gardeners play in this new environmental front line? Hello, I'm Lucy, and today I'm exploring wildlife gardening with Monty Don, Gardener's World TV presenter and magazine columnist. He's also author of a new book on garden wildlife, in which he shares observations from many decades of the wildlife that visits his garden at Longmeadow. As we discuss ways to create a garden that's as good for wildlife as it is for you, we examine the notion of good and bad wildlife, of how we cherish the butterfly but destroy the slug. And so I started by asking him whether he felt we had a rather casual approach to the life in our gardens. I, I've actually, funnily enough, I've just been writing about this this morning. And uh, 20 years ago, when I, I wrote a book called The Complete Gardener, and it was really a counterblast against this conception that everything that wasn't put there and controlled by the gardener was bad be it a squirrel, an aphid, a pigeon, a woodlouse, an ant, they could only do harm. And therefore, your skill as a gardener, one of the measurements was how effectively you eradicated them or prevented them. Now, as an, back then, as an as a organic gardener, A, that, that wasn't what I believed in and didn't do, and B, it, it didn't intuitively feel a good way to go about things. In other words, uh, it wasn't drawing a dots. Now, I think... I think there are a number of reasons for this. It partly goes back to the rise in the 19th century of science uh, against religion. And you have this idea that that up until sort of, you could argue, Darwin, uh, God made all creatures and they were good and that we had to respect them and look on because they were holy. Once science became the new religion, and that's really post-Origin of the Species and Darwin, uh, which, for those that don't know, it is, what, 1851? Am I right about that? I think it is. Uh, you had this idea, that you had this idea that man could control the world and, and that, that we were part of this whole process of refining, evolving, defining, controlling nature. And obviously, that went through the 20th century with the huge burgeoning of the chemical industries, which actually started at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Wartime, the the incredible advancements made in medicine and armaments and chemicals. And I think that filtered through to gardening as this idea that control was, was something that could be exercised almost ad infinitum. And that you could control... If you couldn't control your garden, it was a sign of being a bad gardener. I think coupled with that, and this is a very long answer, but it is, I think, a really complicated thing. Before the First World War, there were a huge number of gardeners. A lot of people employed gardeners, ranging, you know, in suburbia, it would be very normal for someone to have a gardener. Uh, After the First World War, those numbers started to decline but they still were relatively high by modern standards right through to the Second World War. So you had a lot of time. You had a lot of people 
to do things. You know, it's rather like double digging. Double digging really originated as much as anything else in keeping people busy through winter months. Um, and the same, if you've got time to try and kill everything and spray everything and control everything. Uh, whereas a lot of organic gardening and a lot of our current attitude to gardening is actually the less you do, the less harm you do. That intervention is by definition not a very good thing. And if you're having to intervene, it's probably a sign that something's going wrong. Whereas this is incredibly recent. This is only in the last 20 years. So to get back to good and bad, I think increasingly there are no bad. There is no such thing as a bad living thing in your garden. There are things that that have short-term sort of detrimental effects on what you were trying to do, but that's nearly always a symptom rather than, than the disease. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the classic one is uh, slugs and hostas or snails and hostas. People assume, how can I grow hostas without them being ripped to shreds by slugs and snails? You scratch the surface a bit and you find that nearly always these are either being grown in a container or in a London or urban garden, which has notoriously dry, thin soil. Hostas thrive best in very rich, very damp soil. So if you grow them in a container, unless they are full of very rich soil and watered a lot, or if they're in thin soil, are stressed. They may look okay, but they're stressed. And all the evidence, and this is empirical as well as scientific, is that a predatory uh, creature, be it a slug or, or a peregrine falcon, will always go for the lowest hanging fruit. They will take plants that are weak, that are showing trouble. And actually slugs and snails evolutionary process is to eat up decaying tissue. And a stressed hosta leaf, it seems like decaying tissue to a slug or a snail. So therefore it's actually a symptom of the fault of you as a gardener, rather than an attack by this terrible bad creature. And there are many more examples. So where did this kind of for, you know where did this view come from? And I'm I mean I'm wondering I I, I love the the very honest um, story you told in the book uh, that very formative experience you had with a starling. Oh yeah, where yeah, you, yeah. you you shot it. I mean yeah, I, it, it, yeah. it, it's part of this um, discussion really around around the meaning of uh, and the value of life. You know wh- how did that? Well, you were honest for starting telling it, but how did that affect your views? And, and what else has affected this well, this big holistic view you've got? I mean, I grew up in the countryside in the 1960s, where shooting uh, was and and actually around here largely still is accepted as a winter sport in exactly the same way as football or or, or is in winter or cricket in summer it, or skiing, say. You know, no one says that that skiing is is not a valid pastime. It may not be something you do, but no one actually agrees. Whereas when I was growing up and and around in the countryside largely, shooting is just a sport that some people do. And until I had that experience, which for those who haven't read the book, was I one day was looking out of a dormer window where my bedroom was, high up in in the roof of my parents' house, which almost was in the branches of this beech tree, and a starling lighted. Now, starlings in, I think this was, let's say for sake of argument, 1965, 1966, starlings were regarded as, as sort of flying rats, as vermin. They were so present, so common. 
and there was something about them that was slightly reptilian. That was that was the received view, and I I received it. And I had my air rifle, as almost every country boy did back then. And so I took a pot shot at it. I mean, from 10 yards, if that, five yards. And partly to my delight and partly to my horror, it fell like a stone to the ground. I ran downstairs, mainly triumphant, but also slightly guilty. And saw it was sitting on the ground, sort of not standing, but but sort of sitting upright. And for the first time, I saw it had incredibly beautiful foliage. That was number one. And number two, that it was completely defenseless. And that actually I had destroyed something that was more beautiful or as beautiful as I was, that was as alive as I was, that had as much right to live as I did. And I didn't feel good about it. I didn't feel triumphant. I just felt really ashamed, really ashamed. And in fact, I then shot it again to put it out of its misery because it was clearly dying. You know, in other words, that compounded the thing. And since then, I've never killed anything for pleasure. Uh, I have killed things because they've either been caught in traps or, 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 you know, on the farm, if you have desperately damaged animals, you, you sometimes have to do that. But it's always been, you know something that I now realise is, is, is a very grave thing. I, I wouldn't get any pleasure out of killing things. But it took that experience to go from a received view to actually what I felt, actually to see it and deal with it and come to it. You know, I don't really want to squash snails and slugs. Um, and, you know, rats and mice, we do catch, but but not with any pleasure. And actually, another thing which which I realise is that if you catch mice, you're taking away prey from something that predates on mice. And maybe you don't want to do that. So, you know, it, you've got to think of those things. And I do. You know, we talk about the food chain rather blithely. There is a life chain. Everything is connected to everything. Yes. The slug and the hedgehog are interdependent. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I give the example of, of you know, the slug eats your hoster. The, the hedgehog comes along, uh, uh, well, the bird eats the slug. The hedgehog comes along and eats the baby birds. The badger comes along and eats the hedgehog. You know, it's all these are lovely, fluffy, cuddly, bunny things that we adore, but they all do murderous, hideous things. That's life. Well, let's look. Let's go back to the start because we dive straight yeah. in. But but you know, take us take us to the start. So this is your twenty first book, but the first 20th, about wildlife. It's not my twenty first oh. book. It's my twenty third book. Your 23rd book. Gosh, there's yeah. two miss, There's two missing from the front of the book. <laughs> Quick, go back yeah. to them and tell them. Yeah. But it's the first about wildlife gardening. Yeah. So why why wildlife gardening? Why now? And and I guess what is wildlife gardening? Well, so that's the first one. Why? If I'm really honest, um, I was asked to write another book about my dogs. This was about three years ago because I wrote a book called Nigel and it was a great success and publishers being what they are said oh we'd like another one ideally exactly the same but but different you know and I did actually try I spent about five months and I didn't write a huge amount I probably wrote about 20,000 words um and I had to get back to them and said I'm sorry this isn't happening it's just not happening is that I have nothing that I want to say further about my dogs other than I love them they enjoy their life I've said it all and that I could repeat that but that's not in my I don't want to do that 
So there was a lot of head scratching and humming and harring and, and, and people trying to be polite to each other. And I said, but what I would like to write about is all the non-domesticated animals in my life. Not the dogs and the cats, but 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 the sparrows and the robins and the and the green fly and and the slugs and the moles and and occasionally you know the herons or the the falcons or whatever, and they're part of my garden life. They really are as much part of my garden experience as the plants, and I've always felt that, but I've never really written about it. So therefore, it would be interesting and a challenge. And I I'm not quite sure how I'd do it, but I'd like to. And they, to their great credit, said okay. Go on, off you go, go and do it. And so that's what happened. The second thing is that wildlife gardening has, as you know, grown hugely in the last five years, let alone the last 20 years. And what we mean by that is, is including other forms of life in our gardens and welcoming them and growing our gardens and shaping our gardens in order to make their lives more welcome as part of our own horticultural experience. There is still a strong element of fluffy bunny syndrome, but I guess that's always going to happen. I mean, that's human nature. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where we started, wasn't it? You know, it's the good yeah. and the bad. This, yeah. this, this need to either find something to blame uh, mm. or, or just really not understand. I, th- I think uh, I- it's that debate about what's the point of a wasp? Yeah, well, that, exactly. You often hear that. Well, it's actually the answer is really simple. I mean, you know, they, they, they eat an awful lot of caterpillars. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, it's, it's like saying, what's the point in the bee? But, but you see, that question frames the whole problem, the whole situation. Because really what it's saying is, why aren't wasps more attractive and more useful to me? purposely as a human being, not as a gardener, but but why should something that potentially can hurt me be allowed in my space? Um, and as soon as you stop framing it like that, you say, well, well what, is, what do wasps do? Then it starts to get interesting. And immediately you move sideways. That's fine. It, it, you know, you, it, it, it's okay. Now, obviously, if you are hyper allergic to wasps, uh, then they have a they are a threat. And we all have threats. You know, some people are allergic to peanuts, but no one says, what's the point in peanuts? Uh, or, you know, you're, you're, you're asthmatic. What's the point in pollen? It's, and I think that's, that's, that's the same thing. And I think it's because so many people garden on their own or in a couple, um, but very often on their own, and they're looking at the microcosm. They're looking mm. right down at the detail. It is hard for people to see the bigger picture. I think what I hope... And, and I realise it's naive because I always am about these things. I really would like to think that gardeners could start to see themselves in a cellular form as, as part of an interconnecting web. Uh, either, you know, this big giant mesh that is spread across the country or the world of which they are just one unit. Or a cell. I read a book um, when I was recovering from illness. So when would that have been? 2008. So 14 years ago. Uh, called The Craftsman. And I was really struck by the way that it, it thought of crafts as a cellular activity and that cells, in order to thrive and grow, have to, to leak and they have to leak in and they have to leak out. And in order to develop and be healthy, you have to take in information and you have to share information. 
And I saw gardens, you know, and you, God knows I've flown around the world often. I've flown over gardens so much. I look down and I see them as a cellular thing. And that, that if they are tightly con- contained and never let information or, or pictures of any kind, anything out, they wither and atrophy and die. Whereas by sharing, which actually gardeners do very well, uh, everybody benefits. Everybody grows, and the sum of the, is always greater than the, the 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 whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. So, in terms of of nature, what I'd like to think that this book is the is a kind of little toot. It's not a blast on the company. It's a little squeak, saying, "This is where the buck stops, and also where the growth starts. It's right on our back doorstep." And even if it's a window box, even if it's a tower block with a window, you are part of this world and you are connected to it. And everything you do is influencing everything else. Uh, no more or no less. You're, you're, you're not going to change it. You are, you're just part of that movement. And in terms of things like climate change, in you know the Amazon, or the desertification of the fires in California, the melting glaciers, I really do believe that action starts on your back doorstep. Mm. But there's a there's you know gardening in the past has been perhaps the sort of Cinderella of the conservation world. It's it's not had the same kind of power and impact of, you know, the elephant dying, the dolphin, no. the the panda, you know, none of the sort of sexy striding across the deserts. Uh, no. it, it, it's, it's, it's small scale. It's yeah. modest. Yeah. Is, is that changing, do you think? Well, I hope not. I hope not, because I think it's modesty is its strength. I think that that if you... If you start, I think it would be a terrible mistake to try and big gardening up so that it really is the striding across. You know, Monty strides across the lawn. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he will be wielding his spade in this fight against the aphid. Um, it, it, it's, it's the, I mean, the whole point is that you want people to take direct action as and how they can. And that always starts at home or in the street or in the park anyway. It starts in your local community, your family and yourself. And if you don't, I mean, this has always been one of the things that's that's been tricky about the whole organic movement. As long as it's, the two things wrong with it is one is virtue signaling. As long as you do it to show other people how organic you are, then it's a mistake. And two, as long as you have to be um, coerced into doing it by some kind of benefit, it's got to come from within. If you don't believe it, you shouldn't do it. Um, So that I recently read a book about exercise by by an American professor. And and basically it whittles down to the fact that that there is no one way. You just take more exercise, be sensible about it. But the big problem is we don't do enough. And to do enough, it has to be two things. It has to be necessary, so you've got to do it. And it has to be fun. And those two things tend to be counterindicative. And it's the same with looking after the planet and wildlife. You've got to do it. You're not allowed not to do it. But you've got to enjoy it, because otherwise you won't do it. So how can we, So what you have to do is make sure that that's where gardening is so wonderful, is that all the things we know about gardening, the, the simple pleasures, the, the surprising delight, the very, very basic and 
and unglamorous pleasure that is real and deep and can be shared, I think is the key to unlocking that door. So really, I guess that message landing this year couldn't be at a better time. I mean, the, the, I mean, did the did the pandemic um, influence the book at all? You, I I wrote it pretty intensively, uh, January, February, March, April of this year. I think the main thing that that it influenced me was certainly here in April. <laughs> it sounds terrible because people were dying left, right, and centre, but it was a kind of heaven because we were totally cut off from the rest of the world. We were in lockdown uh, for various reasons because we have someone in the household who, who was very susceptible. So literally, we saw no one. You know, um, we did the BBC people, I wasn't allowed to be in the garden at the same time and, I'm, and I still don't. Um, my only contact was through Zoom and the telephone. It was quiet. There were no planes. There were no cars. I mean, almost no cars because we don't have a lot in this part of the world anyway. No, uh, you are at the uh, far yeah, end of a yeah. <laughs> small so, track. So. So, so the point was, for yeah. the first time since probably about 1925, the countryside was quiet and it was filled with birdsong. Uh, and, you know, the insects, you could hear clearly different buzzes and different... Buzzes. And that was that was a both a beautiful and... Very quickly, you were aware that it was a thrilling experience because it wasn't going to last. It was unique. It was, it was a treat. So that did influence me because I became hypersensitive to all that and, and really aware. And it was a very beautiful April we had here. Wonderful. Then we started to get these films coming through. And what became apparent was that people's gardens were really important to their well-being. I and mean, I won't say mental health because I think it was physical health as much. It was just their well-being. In lots of ways, you know, I mean, partly getting outside, being in the sunshine. Thank God it was a lovely spring. Oh, wasn't it? We were so lucky. Yeah. So lucky. Yeah. I think that was that was so influential on people being able to stick with it. Um, people started to garden, having never done it before or not having done it, for pleasure, because they had time. They didn't feel, oh, God, I've got to cut the lawn. Or I was talking, I was being interviewed this morning by somebody who said, the trouble with gardening is, you know, the end of a busy week, Perhaps you've got people coming round. You think, oh, God, you cut the lawn and I'll, I'll trim the edges. That's not gardening. You know, that's not what it's about. And, and so for the first time for a lot of people, they could sow some seeds and watch them grow and then try pricking them out or even try taking a cutting, for goodness sake, you know, and it worked or, or, or whatever. Um, or notice things that because they were always out at work in a way that they hadn't noticed before. And included in their garden was the robin on the bucket or, or, or even just the way worms wiggled around or, or if they had a little pond, how birds came to drink at it. Uh, and then as the season went on, you got damselflies and, and then dragonflies. And, and I think that gave people a huge pleasure. And pleasure was not something we associated with coronavirus, you know. So, so that actually you realise that the... The importance of family, the importance of health, the importance of this simple natural world all came together. And I think the rev the revelation actually that others were experiencing it as well. So back to your point about the being a cell and but part of something bigger. Yeah. yeah. I think that appreciation of being part of something bigger mm. 
really landed, really resonated with people at that point. Because they could see, actually, they were often swapping plants. They were often yeah. talking about seed swapping. They couldn't mm. get something. So they were they were connecting, talking over the fence. All these things we know as gardeners, you know, as such great fun. And actually, it was rippling out to the wider nation. And I think also, I mean, you said you couldn't get things. I seem to remember that I certainly know, because what, the way that we work on Gardener's World is that we have a researcher for each program. And I will send them a list of plants that I want for the program. And very quickly, it became apparent they couldn't get them. You know, it couldn't even get seeds often. Uh, nurseries couldn't get plants out. A lot of them had them, but they couldn't distribute them. Um, garden centres were all closed. Shops were largely closed. Uh, they, they physically couldn't get hold of plants. So we had to take them from friends. Uh, for a lot, quite a few of the plants that we did use on Gardener's World were dug up from people's gardens. You know, because that's the only way we could get them. We and, and actually, if you look back at the programs we made in April and May, we hardly bought any plants. I mean, it's nearly always just using what was here in the garden and, and, and seed packets I had or, or seed I collected. And I think that was a shared experience. You know, that everybody felt that if we if it's made more people grow from seed, that that will be wonderful because you and I know, and I've banged on about this for half my life is that, you know, a packet of seed, which still costs roughly, well, I don't know, what's the average of a packet of seed? £2.80, something like oh, that, three yeah. quid? Three quid, yep. Yeah, let's call it three quid. Averaged out across all plants of all kinds, you're going to end up with at least 20 plants for that. Uh, so, you know, 15p a plant. Uh, it's incredible value, incredible value. And it, it's not immediate gratification, but but what we try and share with people is the gratification comes in doses all along the, the way from, from the minute you sow to then you see it emerging and then you prick out and then it gets a bit bigger and then you plant it out and then it has its first flower and so on and so forth. Um, if on, on a purely horticultural level, I would be very happy if I felt more of that was going on. How important is that within the notion of the wildlife friendly or wildlife aware garden? The, the the cultural sort of methods, you know, the, the way of gardening. Well, I think it goes back to, to being holistic. Uh, if you go to a garden centre and you buy a plant that you think is beautiful and is nice and open and you've read or watched me on telly say open plants are good for pollinators, so it could be an echinacea or any of the Rebecca family or anything like that. So you bring it along. Has it been grown in peat? Has it been grown... Uh, with a kind of intensive chemical regime so it pitches up in your garden centre looking wonderful? Uh, has it been grown using fair trade labour? These are questions that we're very comfortable at asking about coffee or cotton. I mean, not enough, but we do ask these questions. I think we have to ask them about plants. I think that, that we have to be holistic right the way down the line. It is not consistent to treasure the wildlife in your garden but have no responsibility for the wildlife in the peat bog or the rainforest or whatever i mean now nobody we would hope would buy a tree fern that we know had been illegally plundered from the temperate rainforest well i think we should regard that with all plants and uh, and take it through there should be a joined up way of thinking about how we produce our plants, including how we treat 
labor and, and respect and all the rest of it, and including the opportunities we give to people, young people in gardening. You know, everything is connected. And so I, I think that's, I mean, you know, this is, this is not easy. This is difficult stuff. And gardening has traded in my lifetime on being friendly and easy and uncontentious and uh, an escape from the harder edges of life. But that only takes you so far. And I think that it is completely consistent. If, if I, on the one hand, am saying I want people to engage with climate change and ex, you know, extinction of species nor it from their back gardens, they've also, you have to say, I want people to, to engage with all the other aspects of where their plants come from and how they're produced and how they grow them. And so you bring us on really to um, some of the kind of fundamentals that you think people should be, um, you know, carrying out in their garden. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned peat. Mm -hmm. um, you've obviously mentioned um, pesticides. What, what for you are the absolute fundamentals? People listening to this thinking, okay, I've really got to got to rethink what I'm going to do this year. Where would, do they Where do they start? I would start by by getting rid uh, of all pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. Um, you know, the word side, the killing indiscriminately, because it is nearly always uninformed in use. It is used to deal with symptoms rather than problems. So that um, whether they be a certain weed or a certain fungus or, or, or a so-called pest. So get rid of that and start seeing the thing holistically. Uh, the second thing is to, to accept that if you want to have predators, you've got to have something for them to predate on. So if you want birds to eat the black fly eating your plants, you've got to have some black fly. So just accept a certain amount of life in your garden that you think or have been told is harmful. It's not the end of the world. When I, tonight, I can guarantee I will go and cut a lovely cos lettuce for supper. Uh, it will look wonderful. It would win me prizes in shows. When I start to wash it, I guarantee at least six small slugs will come out of it. You couldn't sell it because of that. I accept it. They've eaten some of it. I'm going to eat a lot of it. I just wash them out. It's not a disaster. You know, I, it, you know as well as I do, you get sometimes with your broad beans, it can look devastating because the tops can be black, sooty black with black fly. It's because at that time of year, it coincides with the cycle of the, of that, of the aphid, the bean aphid. Uh, they are not inhibiting the production of beans at all. You just pinch out the tops. There will be birds and blue tits will come and eat them. It's slightly unsightly, but actually you've lost nothing. And, and so on and so forth. And I could give you a hundred examples. So accept some of that. Um, rethink what your idea of beauty. You know, there are still a lot of people who would only think a lawn is beautiful if it is pure grass with stripes, no moss, no compaction, no anthills, no worm casts, start to see that it's part of a cycle, that a lawn is, is a green space between things. The grass could be longer. It could have some daisies on it. Daisies could be the most beautiful thing about the lawn. You know, I've got a bit of grass, so actually we don't film, uh, in the front of the house between Topri yews that is far more moss than grass. I love it. Bring the moss on. It looks great. Why not? 
Always green. Yeah. So, so that, there's that. And I think more than anything else is inform yourself, watch, learn. Just, you know, if you don't know, find out. You have the internet. We all have this vast library. Ask, I answer questions all the time. Is, is, there's no excuse. Find out. You don't eat food that you think might be poisonous. You find out about it. So, so, so do that. And, you know, I think I don't want to hit anybody over the head with a sort of great long checklist. Start slowly. Get rid of all the chemicals. That's, that will be my starting point. Accept that the garden will find its own balance, and that might take a year or so. Just accept it. Go with it. See what happens. And then start to make the garden beautiful on your own terms, working with what is happening. And I guarantee that is infinitely more exciting and rewarding than trying to lay down the law that what things should do and how they should behave and how they should look because someone else has told you. Hmm. I think this notion of perfection that you, talk, <laughs> that you touched on, this notion yeah. of perfection, of, of order, of control. I mean, in a way, it's, it's well, obviously, it's, you know, if, if that's your personality, uh, it's quite difficult to let that go. But I think in, in wider life, there's a sort of notion, actually, we aren't able to be in quite at, so much control of things. Why don't we just be open to things? Look at this pandemic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it is, a, it is a metaphor for what we can't control. And actually, historically, the idea of controlling nature was an idea of the Enlightenment. It's a 17th century idea. Uh, it didn't really exist before then. If you look at Tudor gardens or, or medieval monastic gardens, they're full of long grass and wildflowers and orchards, and uh, there was not the same desire to control nature in the same way. It came through with the Enlightenment, this idea that man could was not beholden to a kind of overarching spiritual thing. It came via the Renaissance, through into enlightenment. And, and then we started, science came along and rationalized it. So it's a phase, it's a fashion. And, and we should accept that it is not the only way. Mm. Of course, a popular way now, entering popular culture and popular or popular sort of um, knowledge is rewilding. Rewilding yeah, well, is now being seen as, as a sort of yeah. as, as the destination where, you know, many larger estates can, can go to. And now even a discussion of, well, how does it sit within gardening? What, what, what's your view of rewilding and what, what can we learn from it? Well, I think we can learn a lot from it. And I think it's really interesting. But, and I have a huge but about it. For a start, I think that when it comes to gardening, it's a non-starter. It's a nonsense. Because? Um, because all the evidence so far is all the attempts at rewilding that have been successful in, in its own terms, and there's another big discussion on that, have been on a gigantic scale. There's the experiment um, in, in Holland, where I think it's 60,000 hectares. There's, there's NEP, which is, you know, the wonderful book that's written about it. But that is 3,500 hectares or acres, I think it is. Yes, um, at, at, at NEP, the, yeah. uh, the book by Isabella yeah. Tree, yeah. yes. which is a fantastic book and has been very influential. But, but with great respect, if you have enough private money so you don't need to earn money off your 3,500 acres, whatever it is, and you have that land at your disposal then it's an interesting thing to do. But for most people, you know, as I, I mean, I, for instance, it, I have a small farm 
as well as the garden. And we seriously discussed rewilding. And we, we looked at it very carefully, very scientifically. And I say we, it's my son who runs it and, and is, you know, he went to Sarancester, he studied, he's, he's, he's very fact-based, he's a scientist, he's not a dippy hippie at all. Um, we came to the conclusion that we needed at least 10 times the land that we own, at least, to make it viable, let alone successful. Because it's based upon on grazing that moves on, that stocking levels you'd have to have would be so low that we it, it would cost us a fortune. Now, what we are doing on the farm is instead of doing that, we are being proactive about encouraging as many species as possible. So we're making wildflower meadows, we're making woodland, we're encouraging the streams, we're clearing them and unblocking them, we're, we're leaving anthills and things. We're trying to deliberately create an environment to maximise the different species from insects to, to mammals as possible. But, when, but that's not rewilding. Rewilding is letting it go and see what happens. And it might be, as, as Isabella Tree uh, so clear. It might be a plague of thistles or a huge amount of, I mean, in the uh, project in, in Holland, for example, they had a huge burgeoning of, of deer because there was nothing. And then they all died because there was no food. So it's full of rotting bodies. So now they've got a huge burgeoning of foxes eating the carrion. And then they'll all die and something else will come. So that's the way nature works. But that's not what people meet want from rewilding. People think of rewilding as, hey, let's go back and it's all lovely and beautiful. It's not. What you're going to get with rewilding are six waves of predatory animals until they eat themselves out of house and home. And eventually, it will strike a balance. But it may not be the balance you want. It might be that the, the, the rats take over because it becomes a very good place for rats. It might be just house sparrows. You know, I, I, no one can tell. Yeah, yeah. So it's there's, 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 Yes, yeah. it, no, clearly. There's, there's also this notion of ungardening. So just letting your garden, uh, your smaller space sort of drift. And, yeah, I mean, the, the, the uh, similar point... thing would apply. All you need to do, I would think, is look at uh, look at look at kind of derelict spaces uh, in uh, in cities. Listen, if you want to maximize wildlife in your garden, don't garden. You may not maximize the wildlife you want. It may not be as diverse as possible, but you will. You will. The logic is is the the, the rewilding in your gardening is not gardening. Gardening is by definition man controlling an outdoor space. Uh, I think I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. I, wherever I went on my travels, I always asked people, what was a garden? What is a garden? Because particularly when I was doing 80 gardens, you know, I'd visit a patch in the Amazon or I'd visit a sort of Japanese highly manicured garden. And I'd have to say, are they both the same thing? Are they both gardens? And the best definition of a garden I ever got was a man called Juan Grimm in uh, Chile, and he thought about it. And Juan said, uh, a, if you have, if a tree falls down in a wood, a clearing is made. If a man cuts a circle in a wood, a garden is made. And I think that a garden is always made by mankind. There are no such, there is no such thing as a natural garden. There is natural beauty, 
and there are natural landscapes, but there are no natural gardens. Gardens belong to man. A garden needs a gardener. And, you know, and, and that's just like a song needs a singer. Uh, and that is neither good nor bad. It's just a fact. My whole point and the point of, of everything really I do in my own garden is these things are not incompatible. You can garden and make a beautiful garden by your own lights and have lots of wildlife. As you know, we have, which we don't film, in the front of our house, we have, I, I, you know, I never always forget, I think it's 16 quite large topiary yew cones. So it's, you know, highly controlled, very formal piece of gardening. Each one of those yew cones has birds nesting inside of them. Uh, and actually, they are always really busy with birds. P part of the reason for that is they only are ever cut once a year. And the grass is only ever cut in season about every 10 days. So that the, the interference is nominal. Uh, even though it's very formal and, and sort of the antithesis of, of, of natural gardening. So these things, it's more complicated than that. I really wanted to talk to you about the language in wildlife writing. Um, you know, wildlife writing, like much nature writing, can be so evocative and deep, but it can also be overwritten, overworked. But, you know, clearly you've loved the process in this. There's some beautiful language in this. I love, I love some of the images. I mean, just my favourite one is probably the, the blackbird at first light. You say it might as well be flexing his bronzed muscles on a Californian beach. <laughs> I love the image of it. I mean, you, you clearly relished writing about, about, about the creatures, about plants. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a writer and, and that's mm. my trade. So I try and do it as well as I can. It was, it was fun to write about something I hadn't written about before. So because you're, 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 you're looking for new language. You know, I have written about a lot of plants. <laughs> and uh, so to, to write about something for the first time, um, you're, you're, you're reaching out for, for new ways to describe it. But, but what I always, for me, there are two ways of, of writing. It's one, what, what are the words that come? I mean, you know, what just pops into your head? Um, and usually they're, they're the ones to go with. Not always, but usually. The other thing is, what am I? What what am I really thinking? What am I really thinking? You know, forget the is, and it could be an absurd thing, rather like the, the Californian bodybuilder. Uh, but actually, that's that's the image I'm thinking. So go with it. Yeah, and and if then you sort of if you see this blackbird strutting with his chest puffed out, come on, look at me. You know, look how big my chest is. It it fits. It exactly fits. So, yeah, I, I mean, nature writing, as you say, is really hazardous stuff because the temptation to overwrite and overplay. So, but, but what happens? I mean, if any aspiring writers out there, what you do is you get, you get it down on paper. You don't feel self-conscious. And then you just slash and burn. You know, writing is rewriting. All writing is editing. Is, is you just take it out. You hardly ever add. You nearly always take out and go on taking out until you're no longer saying what you wanted to say. So if you can say it by taking out, take it out endlessly. And I mean, and, and that's true of all writing, but it's certainly true of nature writing. And um, I, don't, you know, I don't think it's entirely successful. I, there, there are bits I, I was looking at yesterday thinking, oh, I should have had another go at that. <laughs> um, but I guess one always feels those things. You know, everybody always feels that. Um, 
But I think for me, the great pleasure was to to dip my toe into waters that, that, that I felt very comfortable in and knew about, but hadn't actually shared very much. So that was good. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. It's a lovely picture um, in so many ways that we don't see on camera. And I think that's yeah. that's uh, for, for, for people who may feel they even know your... I mean, I know your garden and mm, I've read things mm. in here that has given me another uh, another picture another view on your on your garden I mean, not least the whole imagery that you use of of the sky being so important to your vital, garden vital it's the sky the sky to me is as much part of my garden as as the ground as the trees as everything it's uh, in every way you know to do with weather to do with birds to do with um light to do with color it's yeah it's 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 a, a player it's a big player um, and I remember that being true when we had our London garden. I mean, I, all the time I was writing it, I was very aware of two things. One, I have an extremely privileged position that I've worked really hard to create, so I don't feel at all embarrassed or ashamed about it. In fact, I want more of it. You know, I, uh, that's, that's why I go to work, and I wanted to share that. But two, I have known what it's like for eight years to have a small London garden. And I do know lots of people have very small gardens or window boxes or whatever. And I was always writing for them as much as I was for me. So it was on the one hand, just sharing what I have access to. And on the other hand, trying to make it not just accessible, but relevant. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And you can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time. Gardener's World.